0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, welcome back
1: to the New Books in Anthropology, a channel on the New Books Network. My name is Adam Bobek, and I'm a PhD candidate in sociocultural anthropology at the University of Leipzig. It is a real honor today to welcome to the show Professor Miko Bunkenborg, Professor Morton Nielsen, and Professor Morton Axel-Peterson. Professor Bunkenborg is Associate Professor of China Studies at the University of Copenhagen. Professor Nielsen is Research Professor at the National Museum of Denmark and Director of the Research Center for Social Urban Modeling. He is the co-editor of the Composition of Anthropology. And Professor Peterson is Professor of Social Anthropology and Director of the Copenhagen Center for Social Data Science at the University of Copenhagen. He is the author of Not Quite Shamans*. Today, we are discussing their new book, Collaborative Damage, an Experimental Ethnography of Chinese Globalization, which was published in 2022 with Cornell University Press. Professor Bunkenborg, Professor Nielsen, and Professor Peterson, welcome to the show. Thank Thank you. you. Thanks. So could you talk about what inspired this book and why you focused on the relations between China and Mozambique and China and Mongolia?
2: Maybe I can start here uh, because this goes back to, I think, the original constipation for this project was something like 2007 or six or something like that. Uh, this was a moment where everyone was talking about China and Africa in the sort of media. Uh, it was also a moment when uh, I was so fortunate to have these uh, two colleagues in the anthropology department. I think at this point they were doing a PSD. And we, we were just talking a lot. Uh, and then I realized in dialogue with the two gentlemen here that wouldn't it be interesting to study this phenomenon of, of China and the world, but at the same time reaches a little bit out of the China and Africa uh, regime that was already almost emerging back then, and because I knew from my own experience in Mongolia and what I've heard from others that the Chinese were also of course present elsewhere in the world, including at that point also Europe. So wouldn't it be interesting to, to sort of pool our different expertises, our ethnographic expertises, but our overlapping theoretical and topical interests into a project like this? I don't know whether you want to add something, Norton uh, and or, 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 or about the constipation of the project.
3: Well, I mean, at that point, we had all been kind of, of course, in different ways, been having some kind of understanding or approach to kind of China's growing presence in those parts of the world where we were working. I'm mostly working in sub-Saharan Africa, in Mozambique, and where I started working in 2004. And during those years, uh, China was considered, especially by the donor community, as the odd one out. You know, that they didn't have a very strong presence uh, during the first years of, of, of me doing research there, but actually during the latter part of my, my, my fieldwork, they really came on strong, you know, and there was some, something that they, or they were an entity that couldn't be ignored any longer uh so from from being this kind of almost marginal presence uh, there was something to be suddenly reckoned with and i found that really interesting and wanted to pursue that even further even though it had been at the you know center of my research previously
4: yeah and i guess i mean even the project was conceived before the the big financial crisis but when we got the funding, the 2008 financial crisis was already up and running. And, um, it seemed that the Western economies were nosediving while, uh, China, China, the Chinese economy was doing really well at that point in time. And they were buying up, the Chinese were buying up stuff all around the globe. And we had headlines in, in the economist and, uh, and elsewhere saying that it's China's world. We're just living at it in it and, um, and stuff like that. So it was, um, it was an interesting time to start that project. And um, back then it was a bit of a provocation really to, to, to talk of it as an empire, as an emerging empire. Um, and I, th- I think that has now become less problematical uh, because even political scientists are now starting to speculate about uh, the possibility that, that, that China may uh, become an imperial outfit but but back then I I, I thought it was uh, it it was probably quite provocative and um, and new to uh, to conceive of, of China
2: as an emerging empire. That's true, and I also remember that we actually talked, especially back then, quite a lot about whether it was almost like a, an empire by accident, the sort of haphazard character. You know, at that point there was also some discussions in the scholarly community, people revisiting you know again and with good reason the. the Emergence of the British Empire and how often it starts with traders and trading ports and economic relationships, and suddenly these become so important that they—they a protection, as it were. That's at least how it's presented. That, that they need to be protected from locals. Somehow, an apparatus of security begins surrounding it, and then suddenly you have something that looks like, if not a state, then at least a polity or a quasi policy. And we somehow felt that some of the things were likely to happen and, and seem to be happening. If I May just mention another. Uh, I think equally important, at least for me, motivation for entering the, this uh, project was that I had been working on a documentary film some years prior in in, in in another context in Mongolia. And this idea of working for a couple of months with a team of it was another anthropologist and it was some documentary film people. How much I enjoyed it, how how important I felt it would be to not always do fieldwork on your own. Uh, but actually, systematically try to do fieldwork together. So I think that was also an important part of it for me. And then you
3: spent the next ten years realizing how wrong you were.
2: Yeah. Yes. But you know. But you know, it was at least my. Uh, it, it was my hope that <laughs> but, but, that uh, yeah. it was my hope uh, and our hope that by it kind of seemed logical that by pooling the different knowledge and especially linguistic and. You know, cultural fieldwork, you know, domains, uh, knowledge, uh, resources of different anthropology that you can almost super, uh, you know, uh, size uh, the ethnographer. You know, so instead of having one. Uh, ethnographer that maybe knew one language and maybe the other one a little bit more, but then there was always be issues with that. How, what about having two? <laughs> and one, one speaks with, the, in this case, the, the, the Chinese-speaking people in, who are working on this project in Mongolia, and another one in this kind, myself, uh, speak uh, with the Mongolian-speaking one. It kind of say, sounded like a good idea, and I, I'm not saying that it wasn't now. I'm just saying that we probably didn't fully anticipate all the... Problems it, it also uh, sort of led to, and, and I guess that's to some extent the, what the book is about both about the aspiration and I think also the realization of the original objective. Actually, the original ambition I think has been realized, it's just the manner in which it was realized was quite unexpected.
3: So, so what 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 Mort basically is saying is that we and maybe this sounds a um, megalomanic and it totally is not but we actually try to scale to you know with precision the imperial you know you know uh, you know f- f- phenomenon out there with the three of us and saying that you know they are scaled in exactly the same way you know this supersizing of the anthropologist can in a sense you know uh, uh, exactly decipher what the what the chinese empire is all
2: about and, i mean when you think about it uh, it is only a, a sort of like a difference in degree from the usual, uh, you know, uh, anthropological assumption, which is super dubious that as a single anthropology you can sort of uncover a whole culture. You yeah? know, you know, like so. I mean, to some extent, the the the, the outrageous character of this assumption that we had was. Not particularly more outrageous than the already existing outrageous argument that a single anthropologist can go and uncover, let's say, a Mongolian this and that or Mongolian shamanism. Yeah, Which so, so is also somehow <laughs> a, a somewhat dubious assumption in the first place. Yeah, so
3: basically it's like saying, um, so what happens if we take the fundamental anthropological misunderstanding and makes it global?
2: Yeah, and you, you I mean, it, I
3: think one, three anthropologists. Yeah. How many anthropologists does it take to really make a global misunderstanding? You know, free idiots. <laughs> and so
1: the the project sort of began with this idea of uh, of what you call a dual perspective approach, and you're kind of touching on it now. Maybe you can explain what that is and how it developed throughout the research.
4: Well, the idea was to uh, to do uh, fieldwork projects uh, but to do them together uh, so we we were going to do Morten uh, Nilsen and I uh, were, were scheduled to do three months in uh, Mozambique doing fieldwork together uh, Morten working on the Mozambican side and me talking to the Chinese and then we would correspondingly do three months in uh, Mongolia where I would be working with Peterson uh, he would talk to the Mongolians, and I would talk to the Chinese and then the idea was that we wanted to to study similar things, so uh, roads and uh, natural resource extraction in these two sites and then by systematically comparing and using the China uh, perspective on on these things, we could scale up and, and claim that we could say something about um, about um, globalizing China as a whole. But the idea of, of studying similar things became immediately problematical because we realized that even when we were in the same sites, for instance, Morten Nielsen and I are studying a, a road in Mozambique, I would talk to the, to the Chinese and they would say, hmm, Well, it's a road, but it's not really a road. It's actually a training exercise because we're moving on to build real roads elsewhere, maybe in Europe. And Morten Nielsen would talk to the Mozambicans and they would say, no, this is not a real road. It's going to go to pieces and, and we're not getting any wages really for, for our work. So, so this is not a real road. So even just studying a, th- a thing that seemed very simple, a road, suddenly broke into two pieces uh, by virtue of, of, of studying it from two different perspectives. Um, so at least that's part of the explanation why the whole idea of dual perspective approach started falling to pieces pretty quickly.
2: But if I may just add, almost as a devil's advocate, but of course, there is also a sense to which, I mean, all anthropologists who write, you know, uh, I think, or at least this is what the supervisor would expect from them, is that, you know, that when they make statements, uh, it could be either directly saying that, you know, uh, a a majority of my informants said this, or, uh, uh, you know, a few of my interlocutors were of the opinion that. What what does such a statement actually refer to? Well, presumably it refers to someone who has done a long-term fieldwork, who have had a somewhat systematic way of answering, asking people, let's say through semi-structured interviews and participant observation things and observing things, so that a systematic collection of ethnographic data has taken place. And of course, a statement like that, that one is also based on the idea that, you know, every day when we look at, see the same greeting taking place, in one uh, group of people and that reading uh, with the same name being used in another group of people, that is the same thing. And of course, we can always argue, oh, well, it's actually not the same thing. But at some point, we're all doing the thing that we are, we are studying something, and then we generalize across that. And I don't think that has escaped from our project. It's just that also as a device for telling the very important story about the Chinese empire, we realized that as a, as a device for, for most, uh, I think, uh, cogently, and uh, um, perhaps also uh, as a form of capture, uh, telling that story, it would be useful to include our own mutual disagreements in that narrative, in that uh, ethnographic prose, in that particular genre of ethnographic writing.
3: But I mean, but it's also just you know boils down to you know we we were so you know. Uh, it's so massive a uh, disagreement about things, you know. You know, you have to imagine us going out, you know, some some place out, you know, where there was a, a new infrastructure project being carried out, right? And Miguel and I come driving, you know, in our rented car and get out and it's really hot and we know that we will probably only have, you know, uh, you know, a short period of time, you know, if it's in a break and the workers have to go back to working. So we rush over there and try to build some kind of rapport and maybe we have, you know, some extra time there a few days and and we'll come back, you know, during the, 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 you know, several, you know, lunch breaks and stuff. And um, what happens is that the moment that we then leave this site, Miguel and I start to, you know, argue intensely. You know, so it's not just you know some analytical highbrow, you know, about you know whatever anthropology stuff it might be. We just really see the world differently, you know, and it's and it's not just for fun, you know. It's it, it's really a massive disagreement, right? So we just thought, you know, okay either we have to just make this project collapse from the get go or we have to integrate these disagreements within the you know analytical scaffolding of what we're doing you know and that's what we ch- chose to do and basically it hasn't stopped ever since and you know it's in the book and it's in the in the former it's in the form of the book it's in the analysis it's kind of infused everywhere But I think that to us, it worked, in a sense, in the end, to our advantage uh, that we had set up a kind of, uh, you know, a methodological approach that proved both to be very efficient and not efficient at all.
1: Maybe now is the perfect time to talk about the title of the book, which is Collaborative Damage, right? And so you've already touched on this a little bit, but maybe you can go more in depth. What do you mean by collaborative damage?
2: Well, I guess importantly and in direct continuation of what was just being said um, we are looking at two uh, dimensions or uh, two forms or or sites of misunderstanding at the same time. We're looking at the the misunderstandings and the conflicts or uh, schismas between the the Chinese, uh, often the engineers or Managers who, uh, let's say, are working in the middle of the Gobi Desert in Mongolia, trying to extract uh, different minerals. In this, our case, fluor spa was one of them. And the the, the different, in, the, in their own right, of course, mutually quite different groups of Mongolians. There are people who are living in the area. There are people who are more like migrant laborers, uh, and they have different socioeconomic backgrounds, different genders, but. This situation where where it's nonetheless often presented by people themselves, to themselves and to us as a conflict or a clash between two sides, the two sides of Mongolians and Chinese. That particular clash, that particular kind of like potential conflict we realized was quite similar, if not exactly identical to the conflict that played out between us uh, trying to interpret what we saw and so the collaborative damage refers in a double sense to these two uh, phenomena these two levels or sites of misunderstanding and, and conflict
3: and then also to the intersection between one and, and the other because as i mentioned before you know you know the the book is basically about the impossibility of maintaining a distinction between um, a methodological approach and the analytics, you know, and and the re- the gradual re- realization that that we had to allow that collapse to work to our advantage, you know. So, so it's also a kind of damaging to the to the project's s- construct as such. You know?
2: If I can just mention one thing more, that one thing that I personally, but I also think uh, Morten and Mikkel have been very inspired by, also back also to my PhD studies and. In- in Britain, and this was a time where the work of Mary Sutherne and the like was, was very sort of pronounced uh, in the anthropological community in Britain. And, you know, one of the, I think, main takeaway points uh, from the so-called new Melanesian anthropology, which is not new anymore, it's like four years old, but like precisely is this thing that social relations are not about connections, or at least they're not necessarily about connections. So the idea of thinking about the social... As if that the more connections there are between people and the more proximity there is between people, the more that somehow is the same as saying that there's more sociality. And to some extent, I think one of the advantages of our material is that it shows no, uh, a, a, a conflictual or a ruptured relationship is just as social as a, one that is based on proximity. But its uh, its form of intimacy is of another uh, kind than the kind of intimacy we associate with relations of proximity.
4: But to get back to your question, maybe maybe the word "collaborative damage" also refers to uh, to the empire, uh, so that um, that the, the the way empire ends up being conceptualized in the book, and I don't know if, if the two moderns agree with me, is actually as a, as a as a network of constantly evolving differences and 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 uh, conflicts, so just like the the collaborative damage that occurs between the three of us, so um, it, it is is connected to what goes on between the the, the Chinese and the Mongolians and the Mozambicans. Um, so there is this speciation, this this uh, different internal differentiation that that. Uh,
3: that becomes the book and the empire. Of course, uh, we would love to disagree with Miguel here, but I don't think that we can.
2: I think it's the first time we've actually agreed about something. In the...
3: uh, yeah. <laughs> so, so can you please take this this part out of the interview? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'll cut, I'll
1: cut this part out. <laughs> uh-huh. Maybe now now is the perfect time to talk about these these three concept, concepts that you present in the introduction, right? Empire, enclaves, and intimate distances, because I think we've already touched on all three of them a little
2: bit. Um, do you want to say anything more about empire? I mean, maybe if I can say a little bit more about the intimate distance, because I, to some extent, I guess I already partly covered it before. So the concept we thought was nice because... Uh, as I said earlier, we wanted to highlight that distance is a form of relationship, but we also wanted to highlight that the form of relationship, that distances can have different kinds of intensities. And an intense, if you like, relations of distances, maybe what we call an intimate distance. Yeah? And what, what is, we could find, we can find other works in anthropology and elsewhere that somehow try to capture some of these Intimate distances, we were inspired by two branches of literature. One is the sort of uh, post colonial and historical anthropological studies of empires and, and colonial uh, forms, for example, by Anstola and others. We were very inspired by that kind of uh, line of work. And then, on the other hand, we were also uh, inspired by what I just said this more sort of Strathonian or uh, relational anthropological notion of thinking about that. Uh, what actually uh, uh, constitutes what we see as the social is an objectification of even more intense, vibrant forms of uh, intimacy, uh, proximity and distance that uh, are so intense that they only every now and then assemble into something that is visible. So I think to some extent intimate distance, uh, hence the concept, tries to sort of uh, build on these two quite actually different strands of literature and combine them in order to capture the distinctiveness about the kinds of relationships that we have studied uh, or we have observed amongst ourselves, but also, of course, amongst the people uh, that we studied.
4: The other, day, the, other day at the, book, the other day at the book launch, um, Someone suggested that that you could see intimate distances as the kind of the DNA of, of the Chinese empire, but I think that's actually taking it a little too far, isn't it? It's it's you think of of the intimate distances as a more general type of social relation that we've seen it in in our attempt to uh, to map out a, a, an emerging Chinese empire, but it's not it's not actually tied to that social formation, is it? In in your view, Peterson.
2: Well, yes and no. I mean, I, I like most, most things where you say like you, that there are certain concepts and phenomena in, in anthropological discourse that none of them are, they're very seldom unique to a place, but they might be more prominent to that locality or this cultural form. I think it's a little bit like here. I think that there are, I don't know, wouldn't know how to measure this, but you know, my assumption would be that, that there's more intimate distance to be found in the in the emerging Chinese empire, maybe than in the, in other uh, you know past imperial forms, but I agree with you that it doesn't mean that it's distinct and unique to the place. I I think there are other things that are maybe more characteristic, at least on the surface of it. And then you know something I know that you have been pondering a lot about Bonham Ball, this whole thing about the what we originally called the container empire or the the clunkiness, <laughs> uh, the, the sort of hypermateriality. Of uh, of uh, of what, what we've seen, so I, I, I you know I I, I certainly find that find that interesting idea very, very interesting as well.
3: But I mean, but 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 that that thing about whether or not this is a kind of the DNA DNA of the empire, I think that we also have to keep in mind that you know at the time that we kind of conceptualized this project and worked with it, that was also the period where some of these kind of you know. Uh, Ways of thinking about, you know, relationality in a more political way were, were, were also becoming prominent. You know, Hard and Negri, uh, you know, came on strong with their, you know, work on, on empire and uh, kind of the whole delusion way of, of trying to go beyond the abhorrent way of thinking about uh, relations and, and see these kind of different kinds of structures. And and I think that, uh, in a sense, what this book, in a sense, alludes to without making it into a very rigid uh, conclusion is that, you know, what what if some kinds of imperial or even political structures um, uh, require uh, these particular kinds of uh, you know misunderstandings or distances in order to operate efficiently? You know, and uh, what, what what would that then tell us not just about kind of the Relationality of distances, but about the large-scale political structures that emerge through this kind of, uh, you know, scaffolding or building going on, you know. And uh, I think that in in that sense, it's not to say that it's that this isn't necessarily the DNA, but it's more kind of a, a, a probing, and 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 say, you know, what 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 would that tell us about the kind of. Uh, the the growth of these relational morphologies uh, if we were to consider, you know, and Chinese imperial or, or the, the, the Chinese expansion in different parts of the world in these ways. You know?
2: But can you just maybe elaborate more, because I'm curious here as well. I mean, I think like any devil's advocate would ask here, uh, surely many of the Chinese we have spoken to and also many of the locals, perhaps, although generally less so, were interested in having pretty amiable relations. You know, they were hegemonic, but they wanted to have better relations. They wanted to understand people. You know, classical imperial, you know, sort of like attitude. I guess to to be want to understand so that you can rule or and help and you know all these kind of tropes. So, can you just elaborate more on what you actually mean by the fact that this imperial form requires distance? It's like you. I, I, I would. Uh, uh, recommend I that you there. read. Uh, yeah. you, you know
3: uh, in 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 chapters four to six, which uh, to my taste are by far the best chapters in the book. I I think that you should read them quite uh, kind of uh, you know in depth, and then uh, we could do a reading group afterwards. But 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 it's it it's quite elaborate in there. But uh, you know, the, the, the in the conclusion uh, of the book, uh, we have a, a, a case study of a quite peculiar case uh, where the the a Chinese building consortium uh, wanted to build a uh, or was contracted to build the football stadium on the outskirts of Maputo, <clears throat> and while doing so, they insisted on on uh, putting or placing a large metal uh, s- s- statue in front of the, uh, of the football stadium. And uh, during the entirety of the building process, the Mozambican, you could say, owners of the project, the, the ministry and other, uh, you know, officials, constantly asked them, you know, what's this about? Why are you doing this? What's it? you know, we never asked for any kind of metal statue to, to be placed here. And according to the uh, our or inter, uh, our interlocutors, they never really got a satisfying answer. They never really understood what was actually going on. And uh, and vice versa. Uh, and, and here uh, Professor Bunkenborg can elaborate more sufficiently. But but it was actually the same from the other side that that the Chinese artists and the Chinese. Um, engineers who were responsible for for placing the statue never really understood why the Moussambicans didn't want it. So yes, you can say that they were both interested in some kind of amicable uh, 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 relation, but the point is not to, in a sense, focus on the subjective inten- intentionalities of those involved, but it's rather to look at the larger phenomenon you would say the the outcome of of these cascades of mutual misunderstandings and then seeing is there some kind of way that we can give some kind of analytical um, narrative to what's going on and I think that that's what we've been doing
1: professor bonkenborg would you like to
4: yeah no I was just thinking that uh, in, a, in a lot of the uh of the literature on on uh, Chinese abroad there's a tendency to focus on the on the Chinatown and the enclave there's uh, uh, the idea of uh, of uh, surgical colonialism as, as a particularly Chinese form of uh, of presence in Africa where they bring their workers and they build roads and they have very little to do with the local population so there's this tendency maybe to um, to portray uh, the Chinese as people who are uninterested in in, uh, in in their local surroundings, and I, I think, we in the book we cover several instances where, where this is not the case. The, the the end product may be intimate distances, but it's it's not because of an initial intention not to have anything to do with the locals. Just as often, it's it's about the locals distancing themselves from 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 the Chinese, or the Chinese being perceived as as um, Overly interested uh, in, uh, in in establishing connections in uh, in, in the first chapter, the, there's an example of that. Some a, a Chinese entrepreneur who wants to be too close to the locals, and 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 they distance themselves from him. So, I, and I think that's part of what is interesting about this um, book is 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 the many ways the intimate distances play out and and are established um, and 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 sort of organized in in, in enclaves. Uh,
0: slash nbn50 to get 50% off
1: at this point maybe it's pertinent to ask you know the the subtitle of the book is an experimental ethnography and really throughout the book I mean you and you've already touched on this quite a bit throughout the book you include verbatim shouting matches between you why did you decide to include your own disagreements in the ethnography what drove
3: that for you well, I, I don't think that there was any alternative to be honest. I, I mean I really don't. I mean as, as you can also hear, you know I hear in, in our responses to you and and of course we are doing it you know to to please you and all your dear listeners. but it is you know genuinely and honestly true you know that these discussions have been ongoing throughout. And so it was actually a very concrete, you know, almost practical issue that we had to deal with. How do we deal with the fact that we are constantly in disagreement with each other? And and is there any way in which these disagreements, which were both exciting and fun, but also extremely tiring and exhaustive, you know, were there any ways in which that we could use them to our advantage? And I think that the way that we tried to do it was both to uh, be honest about it in the narrative, you know, as honest as, as you know, without being too, you know, self um you know navel gazing and we, we hope that we have struck a balance in in those terms but it all but it's also to in a sense really reflect on you know what does it mean the, the to allow the methodological uh, you know approach and the analytical approach and the the the, the object of study to merge into one
2: without uh, you know disagreeing with that uh, i would say something that Ostensibly might sound like it contradicted it because, like, I, I would say, yes, but then there are also uh, some pretty, I think, uh, uh, you know, well-established and well-proven forms of writing uh, monographs in our discipline, where uh, the 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 ethnographer uses him or themselves as a, a as an instrument uh, for carrying for, for, for conveying central uh, findings uh, and logics about the phenomena study. So often it would be the kind of misunderstandings <laughs> for example, I have it in my own book about Mongolia how I made a misunderstanding and you know the, the, I could build a whole conclusion up around that and you know we know that we find a lot of classical uh, sort of anthropological monograph that had this kind of like a feature in them, and to some extent, I guess this is just really a version of that. It's just that rather than the mishap between 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 us and the people we study, is a sort of mishaps that take place within us. But actually, I think it functions in the same way in the sort of narrative. But the other thing I also want to say was that. Uh, you know, we, we know personally uh, and have met on several occasions with both uh, uh, George Markwood, but also uh, Clifford. So these are, are, are figures in the history of anthropology with whom I have great respect and I really enjoy the work. But I also often felt that looking back on, on the sort of experiments that were carried out in terms of ethnographic writing in, in the 1980s, they, they, they also seemed a little bit, I think... Um, Narrow and maybe uh, somehow also arty, if you can put it like that. There was a sense that uh, one had to be almost like a poet or or a try to be poetic and, and, and adopt forms from, uh, you know, what might call the finer arts, uh, be inspired by the finer arts to experiment with. And I think, because of our own background, because of our own personalities, because our our genders and our positioning and our age and coming from Denmark, the Shangha the, the that was much more obvious for us was more like this kind of like, uh, almost like stand-up, like uh, manner of trying to put ourselves on the spot. But hopefully, as Morton just alluded to, in, in order not for it to be a, a, the, the aim itself to put us on the stop, but always in the errand of uh, communicating uh, the end, which is to explain what the Chinese emerging empire Looks like and how and how it operates. So for me, these are also apart from being the necessities. They are also very, I think, uh, hopefully, uh, you know, efficient tropes of writing uh, 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 ethnography in a particular and very sort of a uh, conscious way. It's a form of reflexivity, uh, in other words.
4: Yeah, I sometimes wonder whether whether it started when all. Old... All three of us were together in, in Mozambique, and um, one of Morton's friend brought a camera, and he filmed us during our discussions. And I think, in a way, the perspective of the book is that camera, and it was established in that uh, in that field trip, and that's where uh, we we came up with the idea of including ourselves in the narrative. And then, as I recall it, it, it happened quite slowly. It was. It was Nilsson making. We were working on a chapter, and then suddenly there was a passage where Nilsson was making fun of me, ironing my blue shorts in um, in, um, in Mozambique and uh, and uh, refusing to go out in the midday sun, um, while he was, of course, was working all day and sweating in uh, in, the, in the outskirts of Maputo. So there was this little passage suddenly where uh, Nilsson was making fun of me, and then uh that became a model so we we started making fun of ourselves and each other in in uh, short passages in uh, in in the various chapters and yeah
3: so i don't know if but can... I'm, I'm, I'm i'm surprised that that you see this making fun of i i, I would rather say that i'm being loyal to uh, my uh, memories of of us two living together in an apartment in maputo you know yeah i, and, know... I mean i mean i really recall you know it's true what mikkel says that you kind of it started out in you know when we had our this uh, documentary friend of mine <laughs> and, you know, there were these uh, you know sh- shots of him and maybe maybe I'm exaggerating here. I don't think so, but but this is my recollection: is that kind of we were sitting in a in in our rented car, right? The three of us, Miguel, Mo, and myself, and you know, having this you know very childish amateur you know uh, discussion about something that we disagreed about, right? And then. Mm, our friend uh, snuck out and then he filmed the car from outside. And I remember distinctly the car kind of jumping up and down, you know, uh, you know, from our, you know, massive uh, disagreements, you know, with, which were almost physical, you know, to, you know uh, to the point of us at some point. And I, I, and I think it actually uh, ended up with Mikkel coming with some eloquent, uh, well thought out. You know, argument that just put both Morton and my, and myself—you uh, know—I uh, wouldn't say to sleep, but at least uh, to rest.
4: I'd rather doubt that, <laughs>
2: <laughs> at least for ten minutes. Yeah. But uh, but I do think it's uh, its worth reflecting on on you know what what is again to reiterate a question from the '80s that has now become well, it never disappeared, but now it has—we acquired urgency. Because of the decolonial discussions, I mean, you know, like, what does it actually mean to have ethnographic authority? What what kind of rights and what kind of thought do you need to have when you establish an authority? Do 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 we have the right uh, in order to to make fun of ourselves and to some extent, hopefully, to an extent that is within what is uh, ethically and epistemologically okay with the people we study? Uh, can we do that uh, for, for for the purpose that we hope to achieve here? Uh, it's something that we reflect, include some reflections of, about in the introduction, but I'm personally, uh, I wouldn't say looking forward because I'm also a little bit scared of it. I'm, it it would be interesting to see how people, what people will think about this, uh, you know, in, in reviews or, or whatever, uh, comments on social media or in seminars or comments to us or others. I'm, I'm quite... Again, uh, excited to see the, the, the sort of like how it will go down in the comu- in the community. Yeah.
3: But I mean, I mean, I think that one of the things that I've been really interested. I would be interesting to know what people reading the book uh, think about. Is that kind of, of course, during the the the, the latter years in anthropology, there's been uh, you know this focus on also doing kind of lateral analytics, you know, of allowing kind of the ethnography to almost operate as its own. Uh, Theorization and 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 use the compare the comparison as a kind of um, optics by which to gauge you know other uh, empirical um, uh, uh, domains, and I think that to a certain extent, what what we are trying to do here is to allow that to work all the way through, you know, so that we even use our own internal uh, r- uh, uh, relations and uh, discussions and and uh, and. Uh, conversations to to work as, as a platform from which to do some kind of analytical work. So just to give you one example, um, we had one occasion in the north of, of uh, Mozambique, and we described this in, in one of the chapters uh, from uh, uh, Mozambique, where there was an occurrence which was could be Understood as an act of violence or not, and this is kind of what structures our 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 kind of uh, the, this uh, collaborative damage going on in this particular chapter. But based on our internal discussions, we through engaging with that particular instance, we suddenly realized that there are other empirical f- uh, factors going on elsewhere, you know, 2000 kilometers away, which had absolutely nothing to do with this instance, which could now be read through this uh, instance going on in the north of uh, uh, Mozambique. And the reason, or you could say what we used to, in a sense, scale these different occurrences were our internal discussions. So that's that's one way of using this as a kind of, you could say, new ethnographic analytics, to work with. And I would be very curious and interested to know what others, you know, uh, uh, think of, of, of this way of, of doing ethnographic, you know, analysis and theorization.
2: Can, can I just throw in here? And now it, it, it becomes a little bit geeky, but, you know, you, you mentioned we were allowed to be geeky before, like, you know, so what you're saying, or to some extent is that um here these uh, internal in our group uh, collaborative damages work almost as a form of wormholes yeah that yeah. allow you to revisit other sites and other times so it's, it's almost like you know as, as if what the george marcus many years ago called multi-sided fieldwork here occurs but in an instant in a sort yeah. of a space of the virtual but it, it's not something you can just decide to do it needs to be sparked and infrastructured by an event, in this case, by an event that you might call collaborative damage. Right? Or
3: I mean, you, yeah, I mean, I absolutely, and and I also think that those wormholes, sometimes they are they, they are opened up by an exhaustion of our collaboration. You know, suddenly there was this kind of you know opening or fissure. Because of our internal discussions, there was something that that we were incapable of doing. Uh, We couldn't, in a sense, get the analysis to fit while being in the north of Maputo or uh, Mozambique. And suddenly that opened up this kind of uh, gateway to other instances elsewhere.
1: Professor Bunkenborg, do you have anything to add to that?
4: Well, just that... Professor Nielsen is constantly falling through the rabbit hole.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Maybe, we, and Professor Nielsen already touched on this, you decided to split the book in in half, sort of, where chapters one to three take place in Mong- in Mongolia and then chapters four to six take place in Mozambique. Why did you decide to structure the book in this way?
2: I mean, I think a lot of it was purely pragmatics. I mean, it was. So, I mean, one of the reasons why it took so many years for this book to be published. I mean, it always takes a long time for my book to get published. I don't know why, but I guess that's the way it is. But it's just like you know, it's actually just really, really difficult to organize co-authoring. You know, like first of all, you have to organize doing the fieldwork, but then imagine like we all know how it is to just organize your own writing. But you when you're writing with three authors, it's almost impossible. You know, uh, so simply just to make it happen, (laughs) the the writing process. So one thing happened before another. I think that was actually part of it. So we said, okay, this next two months, that always turned out to be six months or whatever, Uh, Peterson and Bunkenball, we work on the two Mongolia, or this Mongolia chapter. Then in the autumn, then always turned out to be the next year. Uh, the other Morden and Mikkel, they work on the Mozambique part. So that, I think, is actually part of the answer, just pure and simple. But I think another, again, pragmatic answer is that maybe Morten Nielsen less so than Mikkel and I, we actually also would like this book to appeal to an audience outside of anthropology. So we would like some journalist or some area studies person, someone working on global development, to pick up this book skip over the more geeky internal and scholarly debates and introduction and read these chapters about Mongolia maybe if that's what they're doing work and get something out of it that they can use in their professional practice
3: well actually I wanted it to be a cartoon but uh, but they, they disagreed on that you know but I mean but, but one thing I mean and and obviously to, to so based on what mod just said you know uh, you know if there are any kind of you know budding you know authors out there you know the the conclusion from our project must be don't ever 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 do any work or you know on writing a book with with you know with co-authoring i mean we started out doing this while i was still doing my phd dissertation in 2009 you know which is now what 13 years ago or something like that i mean that's just insane uh, and I mean, even though that we are, oh, I'm really, really proud of this book, but it's also just taking way
2: too much time. But can I just say, I think actually, just to modify, because it's actually, I mean, it's not just because the three of us disagreed that it was difficult to write. I also think there's something with actually with the number three. I mean, it's a bit like you know the saying is that it, you know, a group of three friends is a little bit difficult to keep stable in as much as they there will always be a sense that one is on the outside. That's not what we had at all. But that's just something that I've co-authored a lot of things, including a monograph, with one other person. And I don't think it was just because I agreed more with this person than I do, let's say, with Mort Nielsen, that it was easier to write. I also think there's something simply that is easier to do things as a dyad than being free. So I I just want to emphasize that I don't want graduate students or everyone who listens to this to think that they shouldn't co-author things because it's actually real good to co-author things, both for the job market, but also because you learn a lot from it. So I kind of want to emphasize that.
4: Yeah, but I also think that the the three-person constellation is... Is, is difficult, and in a sense, it, it also allowed you to disagree more. The the two of you, Nielsen and Peterson, you could be allowed to disagree more, and because you had me, sort of uh, traveling back and forth between Mozambique and Mongolia, trying to keep shit together, so so that um, uh, tripartite structure actually made it very difficult to uh, to keep it together as a book.
2: Exactly. This this is somehow. I mean, it may always make it sound as if Morten and I are are not friends. I mean, we're actually very close friends, and we've also co-authored things where we agree. So I think Mick is right that there's something about the dynamic of simply a group of three, especially uh, certainly this group, where things just become intensified, you know, like something that is actually, on the face of it, a minor, maybe almost non-existing disagreement almost become amplified to the point where, as you heard before, I remember also that shot from that documentary film, and I just remember steam coming out of the of the sort of the door. Someone opened the window, and you literally saw sort of like steam coming out of this uh, of this car. And I just don't know why it happened.
3: Well, I mean, yeah. I, I think that all, you know, the moment that we realized that 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 we needed to explore the the potentials of the internal disagreements, I also think that we we. We accepted their presence in a more kind of intense way than what is probably usually the case. You know, I, you know, I, I always in most of my collaborations it's pretty straight up. You know, and uh, and and I think that we also, you know, implicitly or explicitly, you know, you know. Really, you know, allow these kind of uh, d- dissensions and disagreements to play themselves out, you know, and, uh, and 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 I really still strongly believe that there is an analytical purchase here, you know, I I honestly do, and and but the readers may you know decide if it's if if we've if we've given the navel gazing internal, uh, you know. Uh, dynamics too much weight but as Morten also said before kind of the the naive ambition has all the time been you know driven by kind of this idea that well this actually benefits the projects you know and and then as I also said earlier I don't think that we had any alternative.
2: It's also I mean if you want to take the concept of naval gazing a little bit like you know seriously like uh, then I guess it's it really is, refers to solipsism. So it refers to the idea that you, you could, you know, let's stop talking about the people in Mongolia where I did feel it. Well, let's just stop about my own feelings why I did the feel. That That is sort of rightly or wrongly the, 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 the acquisition that some people have made of the more forms, uh, forms of so-called uh, writing culture. As well. I'm not sure that I agree almost always that this uh, about this line of, of attack, but that's often is the narrative out there. But again, I just don't think that when you're what you're writing about is <laughs> the conflict between, in this case, free people. It's not actually they are engaging because it's not solipsist. It's something else. It's a it's a it's a document or a dossier uh, that that it, to an extreme sense reveals the messiness of a research project, and that is a messiness that all research projects undergo. Also people working in the natural sciences and elsewhere, as documented by Latour and many others who do laboratory studies. So in that sense, it's actually a form of laboratory studies, uh, uh, but just take in, in the form of, uh, of a of monograph. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Or if it is navel gazing, at least you're gazing at each other's navels. Or
3: through each other's navels. Mm.
1: So we're <laughs> we're unfortunately coming up on the end of the hour. Uh, there is a, a New Books Network tradition that I always like to uphold, which is to ask what you're working on now. Maybe we can go down the line in the way that I introduced you. Professor Bunkenborg. maybe you could go first.
4: Yeah, well, uh, just briefly, I'm working on a, a new collaborative project called Moral Economies of Food in Contemporary China. Um, and it should be coming to a close, but... Um, I've been unable to do field work and, and my colleagues have also been unable to do fieldwork in China for the past two years. So um, so it's a bit hard to close it down. And um, well, the point of departure is all the, the food scandals that China has experienced in, in recent years. And then the question of what do what you do when you can't really trust the food that, that you eat? What do people do in the, in the countryside, in the cities? And what New connections are being forged between countryside and cities in, in attempts to uh, to do uh, community supported agriculture and uh, and get some sort of uh, of uh, to to reestablish some sort of trust in, in the stuff you eat. So that's the the current project.
1: And Professor Nielsen,
3: I'm uh, one thing is I'm running this research center on on sustainable urban development and trying to give my uh, you know free sense of saving the world. But then I'm uh, writing up a, a book on um, on a project I did in New York on stand-up comedy called uh, Comedic Involution, The Paradox of Being Funny Among Stand-Up Comics in New York City. And the basic idea is basically to say that, you know, if stand-up comics are a kind of anthropology, you know, what's the kind of... Or, or, if they are, you know, anthropologists, what's the kind of anthropology that, that, that they are carrying out? And uh, it's basically trying to l- look at what they do as a kind of paradoxical myth-making that carries a kind of ethnographic insights about some of the, you know, most important dilemmas of, you know, living in a contemporary urban life. And Professor Peterson?
2: Yeah, I mean, also like uh, this, I run a, a fairly large research center, so I, I spend quite a lot of time on that, but uh, apart from that I'm also uh, the research uh, leader of a research project, a so-called ESC project, where we look at the attention and this political economy. We do that from a very sort of interdisciplinary perspective and actually probably what I spend most time at the moment is trying to develop something I call machine or computational anthropology. I'm, I'm very interested in the idea of revitalizing the potentials and also, you know, the, the attempts that have been in the history of, of anthropology to to make uh, anthropology computational and quantitative, not, not because we should stop doing ethnography, which I love, uh, but because I think we can expand the scope of anthropology by also decoupling the, the project of anthropology from always being tied to qualitative methods and ethnography.
1: The book is Collaborative Damage, published in 2022 with Cornell University Press. Professor Bonkenborg, Professor Nielsen, Professor Peterson, thank you so much for
3: your time today. It was a pleasure. You're welcome. Swimsuit, check. Sunscreen, check. Phone charger, check.